right. Hey, good morning again. It's still a good morning, yes. even since last time. I think it's better even. I think it's getting better all the time. Uh, go ahead and uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, yeah? Um, I'll follow you there. Sometimes I say that, and then I go through the whole introduction, and then I realize, like, I'm in, you know, the book of Zechariah or something. I'm like, oh, you know what? Maybe, maybe I should just, uh, maybe I should find 1 Corinthians. Uh, to repeat some of the more important announcements, well, I'll just do one. Tonight at 6.30, we have prayer here at the church. Uh, I would uh, invite you to come, and uh, if our relationship was a little bit different, I would just order you to come. Just come. Just just be there and pray. The church is supposed to pray. Um, but I'll, I'll invite you. Come. Join us in prayer tonight at 6.30. That's going to be every other week, um, pretty much forever. Um, but today's the, the first one. So prayer night, Sunday, 630. Uh, first Corinthians chapter one, uh, we'll be going through uh, verses one through nine. Last week, uh, as you know, we started the first couple of verses and gave some background. I'm going to read those over again, just so you can get the whole picture, even go over a few things from the introduction that we skipped. And then we'll get into Paul's opening prayer in uh, verse 4. So if you'd read along with me, follow along in your own Bibles from verse 1 of 1 Corinthians. It says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray once more. Uh, Holy Spirit, we ask your help in focusing on Jesus. Um, we know it is your will, God, for, for us, your children, your family, to focus on Jesus Christ, to come to Jesus, the, the sum of all spiritual things, you have, you have no more to give us, just as we sang this morning, than Christ. There's no other gift other than Jesus Christ himself, and we want to receive him to us as best as we are able. Bless our understanding of this word. Bless our, um, our reaction to it, our response to it. We pray, uh, make us obedient. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Real quick through the first three verses, and then we'll spend some more time on verses four through nine. Um, and the review, if, if you were here last week, we start off with the typical Pauline greeting. Paul says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. And he starts all his letters this way, um, but it, it rings a little differently or would have been heard a little differently in the ears of the Corinthians. Because as we'll learn before too long, there were Corinthians who did not recognize Paul's apostolic authority. 
They're like, we go to the list of the 12 and uh, sorry, buddy, you're not in it, you know? And so Paul saying that he's an apostle here is, is, uh, is touching a, a hot button issue in the church of Corinth. Um, it's possible that the Corinthians didn't really recognize apostolic authority at all by anyone because they were Corinthians after all and knew better. Remember, they were a divided people, they were an arrogant people, they were rebellious, proud of their independence, and slow to submit. So Paul says in most of his letters, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, um, but now he identifies himself as a called apostle. I think it means something. feels a little different to the Corinthians. There's a challenge here, or rather an answer to a challenge, to, to stand a standing up, perhaps, to the rebelliousness of those Corinthians that would not accept the apostle's authority. He refers back and he, he refers them to the call of Jesus Christ on his life, which trumps any of their opinions about whether or not he has an authority to teach. Okay, now, how about this guy Sosthenes? Uh, still in verse 1 there. Sosthenes is writing the letter with Paul, uh, probably as his, as his personal secretary, the guy taking down the notes. He's not a Bible character that you hear a lot about. I don't even know if they ever made him into flannel graph. But the, uh, the Corinthians knew him. The Corinthians would have known him for sure. Uh, back in Acts chapter 18, which we looked at a little bit last week, you see that Paul went into the synagogues in Corinth to preach Jesus, just like he always did. And it turns out the ruler of the synagogue was a guy named Crispus, and uh, he got saved along with his whole family, just classic Paul move, right? Awesome stuff. Uh, well, that would have put an end to his role as ruler of the synagogue. You don't keep your job as, you know, ruler of a synagogue if you're a Christian now. That's not really the way that works. So his replacement was a guy named Sosthenes, who was part of the Jewish population that was against Paul and his new Christian friends. So these Jews, they take Paul before the judgment seat, which is actually still there in Corinth. It's a raised platform where the seat was on. It's, it's still there. And they accused him. Sosthenes accused Paul before the governor of the region, a guy named uh, Gallo. And unfortunately for Sosthenes, Gallo had hated Jews longer than he had hated Christians, and he had a lot of practice, and he was really good at it. So they beat Sosthenes instead of Paul. It really backfired on him. Um, they publicly beat Sosthenes before the judgment seat. You can go to the platform where this took place today, and there's a little plaque that says this is where they beat Sosthenes. Um, but we don't hear about Sosthenes again in Scripture until now. We've missed a lot of steps in this guy's testimony. There's a good story I'm sure you'd like to hear someday. Um, because now Sosthenes is with Paul. So that's two presidents of the synagogue that got saved and got fired. Um, and he's with Paul. He's writing a letter back to the Corinthians, serving as Paul's secretary, I guess. And he's a perfect example of the unlikely converts we find in Corinth and throughout church history. The ones you don't expect are the one God likes to save. Verse 2, we talked about at length last week, so we'll just read through it quickly here. To the church of God who is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call in the name of, the, of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. The church is described in ways we wouldn't describe the Corinthians, knowing what we know about Corinthians. But Paul says they're sanctified and called to be saints. He includes everyone else in this call, all who in every place, not just Corinth, Paul in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Um, th this is clear that Paul wants to emphasize church unity, right? He is clearly against the division that was so common in Corinth and can still be so common 
in uh, the you know buffet Christian culture where you just get to pick and choose which camp you're in and throw everything else out. He's very against that. He says that um, this what he writes is to them and to all those who are in Jesus Christ called in every place to the name of Jesus Christ. He's clearly against the division that was common in Corinth and tells them that they are made holy and called to holiness right along with all the other Christians and all the other congregations that they don't like to associate with. You guys are all called to the same thing. You and the people you're fighting with right now are called to the same thing, the same name. Then verse 3 finishes up Paul's typical greeting. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is how Paul starts letters. And it's interesting to consider how this same greeting that he uses over and over and over again uh, just would be heard slightly differently from church to church. For the, the Galatians, for example, were backsliding to law and legalism and really denying grace. For them, when Paul, if Paul were to say grace and peace, the grace part of that equation would have been extremely important. Uh, for a divided church like the Corinthians, who absolutely needed grace just as much as the next guy, the blessing of peace would have been especially pertinent to their situation because they were not at peace with each other. And as a result, Paul will argue they are not at peace with God. It's beautiful that no matter what the specific church was, or, uh, what, no matter what the congregation was going through, these blessings of grace and peace could speak and do speak to every specific situation and bring the blessing that's most needed. You'll always need grace. You'll always need peace. Sometimes you'll, it'll seem like you need one more than the other. But in any case, God knows exactly what you need and has enough to supply whatever you're lacking in both of these fields, grace and peace. Now, verses 4 through 9 are really a continuation of the introduction. This is another common part in most of Paul's letters, something he does often. He, he gives thanks for the church he's writing to. He says, I'm praying for you, and I give thanks to God for what's going on in your church. We'll just read verses 4 through 9 again. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given to you by Christ Jesus that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, uh... Is there any punctuation in there? Uh, this is classic Paul there. Um, we'll take it that one piece at a time. Paul has a lot to be thankful for, and he can't help but just spit it all out. And it will become clear as we go through Corinthians that the main part of the letter is, it's not thanksgiving, it's corrective. It's, it's a scolding kind of letter, which gives us a picture of the Corinthians. That is not flattering. We talked about this last week. We'll be talking about it probably every week we're in the book of 1 Corinthians. They had been influenced so much by the world and the worst parts of the world at that, that they have been forever remembered by the church as this carnal, messed up, broken church that you don't want to be like. And there may even be a little bit of pride and arrogance in us when we look at the depravity of the church of Corinth because we're like, well, at least we're not that bad. At least my sins aren't those sins. And while there's things about the Corinthian church that we don't want to imitate, for sure, let's be honest and say that there are strengths in the Corinthian church that we ought to imitate, that we do want to imitate. 
that there were good things about the Corinthian church that are easy to skip over because of those bright, glaring sins that they're dealing with. But we should take hold of these good things and see, is this our church? How can we be more like the Corinthians in this way? Test all things. Hold fast that which is good. And I'll show you one way in which we are exactly like the Corinthian church in the best way. And one reason we can be thankful exactly like Paul. Verse 4, Paul says he's thankful for the grace of God that was given to the church by Jesus Christ. Uh, You may have noticed that Paul does not say, I'm thankful for you. Or I give thanks to God for you. At least not in in this translation. He says, I thank my God always for the grace that was given to you. Now in this way, we're just like the Corinthians, aren't we? We have received grace upon grace. God has blessed you tremendously. You'll always be able to thank God for this same thing. And it's already been established in verse 2 that Paul is most definitely writing to Christians. And yes, he's writing to some messed up Christians that were doing a lot of things wrong. But there's grace that is greater than all our sin. And Paul could write this corrective letter in hope, knowing that he is writing to a group of rescued people who God has saved, and not only that, who God has inhabited. He's writing to people, identifying them, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He tells them that. And he could bring correction to these people with confidence, knowing that he's not just beating his head against a brick wall. He's not speaking to dead bodies. He's not speaking to the unregenerate. He's speaking to people who the Holy Spirit inhabits, people who have been saved by by grace through faith. And what a great place to start. Paul who is going to basically tell them later, I'm coming for you. You better watch out. This is going to hurt. He starts off by saying, I am so thankful that God has worked in your life. Because none of this is wasted then. I don't think this is just Paul's version of the Southern insult, bless your heart. You know, I don't think that's what he's doing. I think it's more than that. I really think he is actually thankful for them. He loves this church. And then his his thanksgiving gets even more surprising because he includes the gifts of the Spirit next. He's like, you are so gifted. You're so gifted. Which is one of the very things that the Corinthians were getting so messed up about is spiritual gifts. In verse 5, he says, he's thankful that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. There's a few things that really surprise me here. The Corinthians, you will remember, were a rich people, okay? The city, at least, was very opulent. There were some, not many, but there were some who were very proud of their riches, uh, their material wealth. Now, to those people, they're receiving the letter along with everybody else. You would think Paul might say at the beginning, your riches are nothing. Maybe he could borrow a line from James and say, come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. And, but instead, he says, I'm thankful that God has given you riches. And then he makes it clear that he's talking about spiritual riches. But again, this is somewhat problematic since the Corinthians were also so spiritually arrogant that in chapter 4, Paul is going to have to tell them, you call yourself rich, you call yourself kings, and that's really a problem. I wish you were, but you're not. He knew that they were, even, they were misusing their authority, they were misusing their blessings, but at the front end, he said, God, God still gave you what you have. Again, he could have borrowed from James and said, every good and perfect gift comes from above. So I thank God that he has given you the things you're working with. He's given you the tools that you have now. Even if you are using the, you know, you're, you're holding the wrong end of the knife and you don't know how to use that tool or that tool or that tool. But I'm thankful that, you know, God determined to give you these things. So blessed be God. 
But we know they were misusing their blessings, uh, even though they were really and truly blessed. Yes, the Corinthians were wrong in the way they view their spiritual blessings and their spiritual authority, but this did not remove or discount the blessings themselves. Paul says that they were enriched in utterance and knowledge. These are categories of spiritual gift. These are spiritual, they're speaking gifts, teaching, prophecy, of course, tongues, which he'll get into. And then there's the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge. These are gifts of the spirit that Paul is going to list. In verse 7, Paul says they have not come short in any gift. And chapters 12 through 14 are all about these spiritual gifts that the Corinthians had and were misusing. Now, I said this is somewhat problematic because the picture we get of the Corinthians in regards to the gifts is sheer and utter chaos, nothing short of chaos. Paul tells them later, if an unbeliever were to walk into your church service, they would literally think you were insane, and I can't blame them. That's their church service. That's what Paul says. And he brings guidance in how to use the gifts of the Spirit. We get this picture, though, you know, of, of the church, of competition, of disorder. People are shouting, shouting down other people that have something to say, and they're shouting in tongues all through the service. People are coveting gifts that others had and elevating certain gifts above other gifts. So if you came and you have a gift to give that, that would be beneficial for the church, it doesn't matter because it's not tongues and we like tongues best. So be quiet unless I don't understand you, then it's fine. That was Corinthian. That was what was going on in Corinth. And it, it's certainly implied by the placement of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in between chapters 12 and 14 that all of this was happening because the church was not walking in love. The Christians in the church of Corinth did not love each other, and so they had become a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. There was confusion and not peace. Now, for many of us and for many throughout the church's history, we have a very simple, almost foolproof, clear solution for these kinds of problems. Shut it down. That's what we do. We just shut it down, squash it, make it stop, make everything, everyone sit down, sit down. Guys, uh, guys on this side, girls on that side, keep your mouths shut, your hands to yourself. We're going to pray, eyes closed, hands folded. When I say amen, we're going to form nice lines towards the nearest exit and go home. That's it. That's church. Okay? Like, don't, don't improvise. Uh, I mean, this is historically the cessationist point of view. A cessationist is one who would hold, that the belief, hold the belief that the gifts mentioned in Corinthians and Acts and elsewhere were for an apostolic age that has long gone. Um, I'm happy to say that this is not where we stand as a church, but we can still have the all-too-common tendency to take the easy way out in problems such as these and just avoid all the spiritual gifts that we've seen abused or misused. And so we say, well, I've seen that done wrong. I've seen that done wrong, so never do it. End of story. And I think it's very, very important when we talk about abuse of a spiritual gift that we need to realize neglect is a type of abuse. So Paul doesn't say, stop, shut it down. He doesn't say, don't use the spiritual gifts. Don't do that. He doesn't even say, just use the normal ones. Stop being weird. You know, he says, he says in chapter 14, later on, chapter 14, verse 39, he says, don't forbid speaking in tongues. This is the last church any pastor would say that to. It's like, yeah, we're going to forbid that. You guys are crazy. He says, no, don't, don't tell them they can't do it. But he continues, let all things be done decently and in order. And of course, we'll, we'll get into all of that when we get to chapter 12, 13, 14. But even here in chapter 1, we see very clearly 
note, Paul does not say shut it down. He says, uh, he does not say, guys, you need to stop everything you're doing. Just sit still. Read this letter over and over again. That's your church. No, he says, I thank God that you're not lacking in any gift. You have such variety in your church services. You have prophecy. You have tongues. You have the gifts of mercy. You have the gifts of help. You have leaders. You've got teachers. You've got all these different gifts, and you're not lacking in any of them. All your people, they're gifted. Now, knowing what you know about the Corinthian church from last week or other studies you've done, how would you pray for these people? I think I'd pray something like this. God, please control your kids in public. Uh, people are staring. You know, like, like, you have a leash or something? But when Paul prays for the Corinthians, he prays, God, thank you for saving them by your grace. Thank you for giving them your gifts. They're so rich. Thank you for confirming the testimony of Christ in them so that I can have confident hope that you will also confirm them to the end, that they will be blameless in the day of Jesus Christ. Now, let's take that last bit of his prayer. Read verse 8 again. He says, who will confirm you to the end that you may be, may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or the ESV, which I like a little better in this verse. He says, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Corinthian church was divided and divisive. Uh, there were factions and cliques and these people over here thought they were so much better than the people over there. There were rich people abusing poor people, people getting drunk at church, not just at church, but in communion. There was the perversion that the church isn't worth mentioning in church. <laughs> and the leadership in the church was proud of it because they were so open-minded and accepting of all sorts of sinners. Their Sunday service was chaos, people shouting over each other, which would be bad enough, but they were shouting over each other in language that wasn't intelligible to most. The Corinthians were not walking in love towards each other. They were not giving preference to one another. They had rejected the authority of the apostles themselves, and some of them were preaching that there isn't any resurrection of the dead. And we'll see them in heaven. Because Christ will sustain them to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. We will see them in heaven. We will be with them in heaven. We will worship with them in heaven. And not only that, when we see them, we won't see the marks of sin and compromise and worldliness that we read about in this letter. We will see them guiltless, blameless, without spot or wrinkle, as Ephesians 5.27. How can this be so? This equation doesn't seem to make sense. If they're really as bad as Paul is going to say they are, and he doesn't hold back, how can they also be as good as Paul says they are? Well, verse 9 gives us the answer, doesn't it? God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. If their saintliness and righteousness and blamelessness and spotlessness and, I don't know, wrinklelessness, wrinkle-free, ironed, I don't know, um, if all of that depended on their behavior, then what, what Paul is saying would be little more than nonsense, wishful thinking at best. But if their saintliness and righteousness and blamelessness, etc., depends on God who is faithful, then it makes all the sense in the world. Paul can tell the Corinthians, you're sanctified, because Paul recognized the infinite power of the one who sanctifies, and that in that in that process, we are certainly the passive party. Paul could have faith in the final product, so to speak, the final victory of the Corinthian church, because Paul had faith in the faithfulness of God. 
Martin Luther coined a famous phrase, uh, simul justice et peccator, and you can almost read it right in English, simultaneously justified and sinner. If he had a business card, he would have put it on it. Before coming to this conclusion, Luther was tormented, driven, driven nearly to madness because he was aware of his sin and unaware of God's mercy on that sin. Whatever, what every Christian comes to realize eventually is the truth of Romans 5.8, that it was while we were sinners Christ died for us. It is while we are still sinners that Christ can see us as justified. While the Corinthians were struggling with their divisions and pride and worldliness and everything else, Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and with a perspective that is truly spiritual, says, you're sanctified, you're gifted, and you will be completely blameless. How can he be so confident? Because God is faithful. He's confident in the faithfulness of the one who called them in the first place. Paul will make the same argument in 2 Timothy uh, near the end of his life. He's writing 2 Timothy 2, 12 through 14. And, and while it is a message of hope, it's not without a sobering warning. The passage in 2 Timothy is presented as a sort of creed written in, a, uh, in verse form for easy memorization, easy group recitation. Um, 2 Timothy was written much later than 1 Corinthians. And I, I wonder if the Corinthians were familiar with this saying, if this was a creed that the early churches were saying. But Paul writes this, he says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Paul will bring the warnings, and there is a warning in that creed, of course. If we deny him, he'll deny us. That's serious. That should be taken seriously. But the end of the creed shows, like, in this, God never, never showed himself to be unfaithful. Paul's going to bring warnings. He will encourage the Corinthians to endure. He will warn them of the cost of denying Christ. But right here at the very beginning of his letter, he highlights and elevates and even exaggerates, if it were possible to exaggerate, the faithfulness of God. He says, God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. To the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. And that is a fellowship, we already know from verse 2, that includes all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. So he, he's setting up this argument that he's going to get into deeper in the coming verses. He, he's setting up his argument for unity that's going to start next week, in the next verse really. Um, he's preparing to tackle the problem of division within the church by realigning the church's focus onto the high nature of their calling. And more specifically, by realigning their focus on Jesus Christ himself he's told uh he's told them that they they're called to fellowship they're called to the fellowship of jesus they are called by god who is faithful they are called to be guiltless um, something else paul has done very intentionally and i believe very effectively is that paul has brought jesus into every sentence every thought invoking the name of jesus 11 times in the first 10 verses Go back to verse 1, see if you can find what Paul is trying to focus on in this conversation. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. 
that you are enriched in everything in him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son. You want to guess his name? Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then if you want to keep going into verse 10, which really begins the next section, he says, Now I plead to you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you speak, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no division among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. What do you think Paul wants to talk about? <laughs> I think Paul wants to talk about Jesus. We know that the Corinthians have problem that, problems that Paul is trying to fix. What, or rather who, do you think the solution to these problems is going to be? I think he's Jesus Christ. I think Paul is also taking the, the focus off of himself right away because he knows the Corinthians have problems with him. He's not who they want to receive letters from. Not like Not this kind of letter anyway. He says, it's not about me. I was called by Jesus. You were called by Jesus. We're looking to follow Jesus. Now, the Corinthians' first problem was division. They were fighting. They were dividing. They weren't unified. So where does Paul draw their attention to in order to get their selfish minds off of themselves? I think he wants them to look at Jesus Christ. Now, last week, we gave the short list of the problems in the Corinthian church. It might have felt like a long list, but for them it was just a fraction of the total problems they were having and certainly a fraction of the total problems that we could have. Well, the solution list is very short. The solution to their problems and yours is Jesus Christ. It makes me think of Tolstoy's opening line of Anna Karenina. He says, happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. The Corinthian family was unhappy in dozens of ways. <laughs> And they were failing in ways that, say, the Galatian church or the Laodicean church hadn't even thought of to fail in those ways yet. But the key to their happiness as a church, their blessedness as a church, was the same solution that Paul offers the Galatians. It's the same solution that Jesus offers the Laodiceans in Revelation. The problem is always sin, though it may take many forms. The solution is always Jesus himself, who is the same yesterday, today, forever. This is where Paul brings our focus. Let's pray. Jesus, in response to your word, we look to you, we worship you, we bless you. We ask that our eyes would be fixed on Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. We ask that we, as a church, would have Christ be our greatest desire. And in that, that all other lesser desires that may cause division would be forgotten, dropped by the wayside. We look to you, Jesus. In you, it's all our hope, all that we need, all our salvation. And we love you and ask you to continue to bless our church with nothing less than yourself. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. 
are sent.